This is News Source 1 Mikiana. Welcome to your new afternoon and evening edition of News 2 Go. All the news and feature segments to keep you entertained and enlightened. With SRN News, I'm Jason Walker. Ukraine's president says it could declare neutrality, potentially accept a compromise on contested areas in the country's east, and offer security guarantees to Russia to secure peace with, quote, no delay. President Volodymyr Zelensky says Ukraine seeks a speedy peace in talks due to get underway this week in Turkey, though he believes only a face-to-face meeting with Russia's leader could end the war. In an interview with independent Russian media outlets, Zelensky stressed that Ukraine's priority is ensuring its sovereignty and preventing Moscow from carving it up, but added security guarantees and neutrality, non-nuclear status of our state. I'm Charles Diladesma. Well, North Korea says that Kim Jong-un has vowed to develop more powerful means of attack. That comes just days after its most serious missile launch in several years. Also at srnnews.com, Russia's war in Ukraine has most Americans somewhat worried the U.S. could be drawn into the conflict and be targeted with nuclear weapons. The Associated Press North Pole found roughly 9 in 10 Americans are somewhat concerned Russia might use a nuclear weapon against Ukraine. Half say they directly target the U.S. and close to half of Americans say they are extremely or very concerned the U.S. might be drawn Drawn into a war with Russia. That is correspondent Julie Walker reporting. A motorist has crashed into a homeless encampment in Salem, Oregon. At least four people are dead. Three have been injured. Police say a 24-year-old man arrested and say alcohol may be a contributing factor. And a new report says the FDA and CDC may approve a second booster shot for those who are 50 and older. This is SRN News. Now, just how much money can you raise with a bake sale? $145,000. That's what the Ukrainian Pentecostal Church of Nicholasville, Kentucky, raised this month. And you can guess where it's going, to the embattled people of Ukraine. Organizer Victor Salapina tells the Christian Post, quote, We never anticipated to have so many people come out and to raise that amount of money. Churches all around the U.S. are making donations to help Ukraine and the millions of refugees pouring across her borders. Michael Harrington, SRN News. There has been a rash of bomb threats against Jewish institutions in a number of states. The Secure Community Network tells the Jewish Telegraphic Agency threats have been aimed at Jewish community centers recently in Pennsylvania, Missouri, Oklahoma, Arizona, and New Jersey. Anti-Defamation League says we remain in ongoing contact with law enforcement agencies. This is SRN News. Attempts to get civilians out of areas badly hit by war in Ukraine, stalling with the country's deputy prime minister. He says no humanitarian corridors would be open on Monday. The news will come as a bitter blow amid a deteriorating humanitarian crisis. Ukraine's deputy prime minister, Irina Verishchuk, put the decision down to safety, citing intelligence warnings that Russian forces might deliberately target convoys. The mayor of the worst-hit city, Mariupol, has again blamed Russian forces for not letting evacuation buses into the southern port, something they deny. 
Vadim Boychenko wants all civilians still there, some 160,000 people, he says, taken to safety. That is BBC correspondent Danny, uh, Danny Everhart reporting. On Wall Street at this hour, the Dow is off 296 points. More details at srnnews.com. From Feature Story News in Washington, I'm Kate Fisher. Russian President Vladimir Putin is set to sign a presidential decree restricting visas for foreigners from a raft of what Moscow's describing as unfriendly states. The list includes, among others, the US, Canada, the UK and all European Union states in retaliation for sanctions against Russia. It comes as Western unity against Russia shows further signs of strain. Nina Maria Potts reports from Washington. Russian Foreign Minister Sergei Lavrov says a draft presidential decree is aimed at restricting entry rules for people from what he terms unfriendly states. Travel restrictions are in response to what he said was other countries' unfriendly actions against Russia. The list includes the United States and Canada, the EU states, the UK, Ukraine, Switzerland, Japan, South Korea, Australia, New Zealand, Singapore and Taiwan, among several others. The move comes amid frictions between the Biden administration and European partners after the the U.S. president's visit to Poland, where he went off script, slamming Russian President Vladimir Putin as a butcher. In comments, the White House had to walk back, insisting Washington is not calling for regime change. French President Emmanuel Macron has warned against language escalating the crisis. Ukraine says it will not open up humanitarian corridors on Monday due to warnings of Russian provocations on those routes. And Ukrainian President Vladimir Zelensky has said that his government is prepared to discuss adopting a neutral status as part of a peace deal with Russia. Negotiations between the two countries are set to resume in Turkey this week. Neutrality means a country does not ally itself militarily with others. P&O Ferries is facing pressure from the British government to rehire 800 employees that the firm fired without notice earlier this month. The Transport Secretary's written to P&O's chief executive urging him to reconsider and he's due to meet the bosses of rival companies in a bid to keep ferries running. Sally Patterson reports from London. Reports suggest that legislation is in the works to ensure ferry workers are paid at least minimum wage. Unions, however, say the 800 workers fired from P&O via a video message must be reinstated on their existing terms, not the national minimum wage. A fresh wave of protests is planned for this week across the UK, including a blockade outside a Scottish port. Several P&O services remain suspended after the firm replaced staff with agency workers, paid an average hourly rate of £5.50, well below the legal minimum wage. Government officials will meet with rival firms, including DFDS and Stena, over concerns about whether British ports will be overwhelmed during the Easter holidays. Sally Patterson, London. From bureaus worldwide, this is FSN. With FSN Spotlight, I'm Simon Marks. As White House officials continue to clean up President Biden's ad-libbed comment over the weekend calling for Vladimir Putin's removal from power in Moscow, 
What is the future for the Russian leader? Today, the thoughts of his first prime minister. Mikhail Kasyanov served in the role from 2000 until 2004, a time at which the Russian leader was first finding his feet and long before the crippling Western sanctions of today could even be envisaged. For Russians, that will be decades of paying out for all these problems Mr. Putin created for the country. Mr. Kasyanov says in reality, Vladimir Putin's fall from power is now preordained. Mr. Putin believes that he could uh, overpress the West because uh, the always saying just that for those leaders in the West, they need to consult their parliaments. They, it takes them just days and days to, to make a decision. To take a decision for him, it's very easy. Dictatorship, he, he, he taking, he taking the decision early in the morning and the goes, goes, goes on. If uh, uh, Ukraine uh, stand up and continue to, to defend itself and win this war. It means it's already beginning of Putin's era end. And I think that would last uh, at maximum two years. Of course, the manner of his demise remains unclear, nor whether the West will succeed in securing accountability for the war crimes the US now says Russia has committed in Ukraine. With FSN Spotlight, I'm Simon Marks. Our main news again. Russian President Vladimir Putin is set to sign a presidential decree restricting visas for foreigners. Ukraine saying it will not open up humanitarian corridors on Monday due to warnings of Russian provocations on those routes. And P&O Ferries is facing pressure from the British government to rehire 800 employees that it fired without notice earlier this month. And that's the latest feature story news. Kate Fisher reporting. Here is your roller coaster weather forecast. Monday sunny, with a high near 35. Northwest wind 10 to 15 mph, with gusts as high as 20 mph. Monday night partly cloudy, with a low around 22. North wind 5 to 10 mph becoming northeast after midnight. Tuesday partly sunny, with a high near 43. East wind 5 to 15 mph, with gusts as high as 20 mph. Tuesday night rain after 9 p.m. Low around 37. Southeast wind around 15 miles per hour, with gusts as high as 30 miles per hour. Chance of precipitation is 80 percent. Wednesday rain, mainly after 3 p.m. High near 67. Chance of precipitation is 80 percent. Wednesday night rain. Low around 43. Chance of precipitation is 100 percent. Thursday rain likely, mainly before 9 a.m. Mostly cloudy, with a high near 46. Chance of precipitation is 60%. When you look in the mirror, what do you see? How do you think of yourself when you look at your life? Are you proud of who you are and all that you can do? Or do you see that you're not all you should be and you never have been? Friend, I hope that you're honest enough to admit that you need help, and lots of it, because that is the posture that places you in position to be rescued by the one and only God. Hi, I'm Pastor Joel of Heart City Church, and today we'll hear David model for us the proper posture of being poor and needy in his prayer in Psalm 86. Psalm 86 Hear me, Lord, and answer me. For I am poor and needy. Guard my life, for I am faithful to you. Save your servant who trusts in you. You are my God. Have mercy on me, Lord, 
for I call to you all day long. Bring joy to your servant, Lord, for I put my trust in you. You, Lord, are forgiving and good, abounding in love to all who call to you. Hear my prayer, Lord. Listen to my cry for mercy. When I am in distress, I call to you because you answer me. Among the gods, there is none like you, Lord. No deeds can compare with yours. All the nations you have made will come and worship before you, Lord. They will bring glory to your name. For you are great and do marvelous deeds. You alone are God. Teach me your way, Lord, that I may rely on your faithfulness. Give me an undivided heart that I may fear your name. I will praise you, Lord my God, with all my heart. I will glorify your name forever. For great is your love toward me. You have delivered me from the depths, from the realm of the dead. Arrogant foes are attacking me, O God. Ruthless people are trying to kill me. They have no regard for you. But you, Lord, are a compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness. Turn to me and have mercy on me. Show your strength in behalf of your servant. Save me, because I serve you just as my mother did. Give me a sign of your goodness, that my enemies may see it and be put to shame. For you, Lord, have helped me and comforted me. Psalm 86 is the sustained cry of a man who recognizes he needs God-sized help. And remember, this is David, the same guy who killed lions and bears as a boy, and later slew a mighty giant. But David does not look at himself in light of his highlights. David sees what we must see if we are to find help and salvation. He sees that he is a man with a divided heart, a man with enemies too great for him, a man who is poor and needy. My friends, David has come to the end of himself. And friend, we need to come to the end of ourselves if we ever hope to find our beginning in God. And when we begin with God, we find we have hope, great hope, God-sized hope. Do you notice how many characteristics of God David had eyes to see after he saw himself rightly? God is forgiving, good, abounding in love, great, doing marvelous deeds, faithful, compassionate, gracious. The list just went on and on and on. A take home from Psalm 86 is this. When we take our eyes off our abilities, ourselves, and fix our eyes on our great and awesome God, we have certain hope. A second point is to see that David came assured that God would help because he was God's servant. Four times David appeals to serving God or being his servant. That should also cause us to take our eyes off ourselves and actually to first place them on Jesus, David's greater son who became the suffering servant, who was faithful to God and was attacked by ruthless men who ultimately killed him. But God heard the prayer of his servant and showed his strength by raising Jesus from the dead. And now we can come to God knowing that he has given us a sure sign. And by putting our trust and becoming united to Jesus, 
we can come to God and ask him to give us undivided hearts. Hearts that fear God's name as we live in the land of the dying, waiting for our great transfer to the land of the living. So turn to God in all your neediness and find that God's love abounds beyond all that you could ever ask for or imagine. My friend, remember who you are and who you belong to. Today's episode is sponsored by Walmart. Good morning. Welcome to Axios Today. It's Monday, March 28th. I'm Nyla Boudou. Here's how we're making you smarter today. The fight brewing over congressional redistricting in North Carolina. Plus, police departments are underreporting hate crimes to the FBI. But first, today's one big thing. President Biden goes off script on Vladimir Putin. In the last line of a 27-minute speech to close out his European trip, President Biden ended with an off-the-cuff comment aimed at Vladimir Putin. For God's sake, this man cannot remain power. And those nine words are now threatening to overshadow the unified front the West has presented against Russia. The White House quickly walked back that statement from Warsaw, including Secretary of State Antony Blinken on Sunday. As you've heard us say repeatedly, we do not have a strategy of regime change in Russia or anywhere else for that matter. Joining us to explain how consequential President Biden's remarks might be is Axios World Editor Dave Lawler. Hey, Dave. Hi, Noah. During his three-day trip, President Biden had successfully signaled to Putin that the West was united against him. We talked about this on the podcast on Friday. How much do these impromptu words undermine the West's resolve here? Yeah, we're getting some signals that those words have made some allies a little bit nervous, including French President Emmanuel Macron, who said there should be no uh, escalation in rhetoric in addition to uh, in warfare. And so uh, Biden is out on his own, more or less, in calling for Putin to leave, uh, even if the sanctions and the other steps that have been announced were unified with allies. Why does this matter? I think a lot of people think that Vladimir Putin shouldn't be in power. Why does it matter if Biden says that now? I guess it depends how Vladimir Putin takes it. I mean, he certainly does not think that Joe Biden is happy to see him sitting in the Kremlin. Uh, but does this play into his at least rhetoric about the West really having broader aims, not just wanting to end the war in Ukraine, but to change Russia itself to really have an act of aggression against him? Uh, so it maybe strengthens that argument, whether it changes what he thinks in private, we don't really know necessarily whether this changes his calculus. Dave Lawler is Exos' world editor. And for more on what's at stake with these peace talks, you can check out the podcast Dave is hosting, How It Happened, Putin's Invasion. The latest episode is also out this morning. Thanks, Dave. Thanks, Nyla. After the break, we're back with the lack of police reporting on hate crimes. Walmart is working to better the planet and reduce emissions across its global supply chain. The company's focus on concrete action on climate, nature, and waste is improving communities in measurable ways. Learn more at walmart.com sustainability. Welcome back to Axios Today. I'm Nyla Boudou. 
more and more police agencies are opting not to share hate crimes data with the FBI. That's according to numbers from the Justice Department. But advocacy groups, including the Anti-Defamation League, Stop AAPI Hate, and the Southern Poverty Law Center, say they've tracked many more incidents. Why the discrepancy? Axios's race and justice reporter Russell Contreras is here to go deeper. Russ, if we hear that hate crimes are rising, how do we know they're also being underreported by agencies? Well, the Justice Department keeps statistics from police departments across the country. That means more than 12,000 law enforcement agencies are saying they have none or they have just a tiny bit of hate crimes. This, of course, kind of really hits our, our numbers, our to- total numbers, and saying, are we getting an accurate picture of the number of hate crimes across the country? Places like in Alabama, Arkansas, and Florida, a number of towns and cities are reporting no hate crimes. Law enforcement agencies that are reporting hate crimes are reporting a higher number of hate crimes. According to some folks, the Center for the Study of Hate and Extremism, Los Angeles had the highest number of hate crimes in its history, a three-decade high. If you looked at what Los Angeles is doing, they've actually increased the way they report hate crimes. So the reporting has gotten better. So as New York, so has Houston. So the places that are reporting hate crimes are doing a better job of reporting hate crimes. But other places, like Miami, are reporting zero. So the thinking is that maybe hate crimes are actually worse than what we're seeing. We asked constitutional lawyer Noah Feldman last year after the Atlanta spa shootings why it's so difficult for lawyers to prosecute a hate crime. Here's what he said. A lot depends on how expert the police department is in gathering the evidence that a hate crime existed. Was the crime actually motivated based on hate? And can you prove to a jury beyond a reasonable doubt that the crime was motivated based on hate? Russ, is it just easier to convict someone for, say, assault instead of a hate crime? When a law enforcement agency looks into a crime, they're gathering evidence. So they may look into a murder, an assault, about what happened. To really deep dive into why a hate crime occurs, they need to gather more evidence. Some law enforcement agencies just go for the basics. To really look at hate crimes, you have to dedicate the resources and then you have to classify it. So some of these agencies don't have the capacity Some do. They're just refusing to do it. Last year, President Biden announced a lot of different efforts around this, but reporting on this is still voluntary. So what, if anything, is the Department of Justice saying it could or should do to improve this underreporting? Well, the Justice Department is saying that police agencies need to report their hate crimes. But there's nothing right now that's compelling law enforcement agencies to do it other than the goodness of their hearts. However, advocates say some federal grants should be tied to reporting hate crimes. That is, the grant should be denied to law enforcement to hire more police officers or to get more equipment unless you start reporting hate crimes. Right now, there's an impasse and there's nothing compelling to force these agencies to start reporting their hate crimes. Russell Contreras is Axios' race and justice reporter and co-author of Axios Latino. Thanks, Russ. Thanks for having me. The big question of this year's midterm election is which party retains control of the House of Representatives. Right now, it's all up for grabs. In one battleground state, North Carolina, a new congressional map is likely to give Democrats an extra seat in the House this fall. North Carolina has been controlled by the GOP for nearly two decades. I was in Charlotte last week, so I sat down with Axio Charlotte's Michael Graff to help us understand the big picture here. Hey, Michael. Hey, thanks for having me. 
You wrote about how Democrats are looking at this as an opportunity. How are they capitalizing on redrawing maps here? So the maps were, when the legislature originally drew the maps, most analysts would say that it was probably a 10-3-1 Republican advantage uh, in, in that 10 seats would go to Republicans, three would go to Democrats, and one would be at sort of a toss-up. Now it's more like 7-6-1. Um, and the Democrats are trying to figure out ways to use it to increase diversity in their congressional representation. And so they've really targeted two districts, one around Durham and one in northeastern North Carolina, which has a really rich history uh, regarding race and, and our congressional races. Republicans in the state tried to contest this map. They tried to get it to the Supreme Court. And the Supreme Court has decided not to hear the case. So the Republicans are moving forward this year. But the, the key thing is that it's, it's an interim map. This is only for this year. So they're going to redraw the districts again after next year. We're going to go through this again. And I think the key thing about this is, after all the partisan uh, back and forth, voters are just really confused about who is representing them, where the district lines are. I joke that some of the maps in uh, North Carolina this past year uh, had a shorter shelf life than a, than a gallon of milk. They were there and they were gone. So if you're a voter, it's hard to keep up. In the meantime, how does North Carolina fit into a bigger national strategy for Democrats? North Carolina in 2008 narrowly went for Barack Obama, and that was a, a pivotal moment in the state. And it's why we still call it a purple state, even though uh, the past three presidential contests since then have all gone to, to Republicans. It's a battleground state for sure. And now unaffiliated voters make up the largest share of voters in North Carolina. Democrats are second and Republicans uh, rank third. That helps the Democrats build their argument that these districts are unfair when they say, you know, we have 300,000 more Democrats living in North Carolina than we do Republicans. Axia Charlotte's Michael Graff. Thanks, Michael. Thank you for having me. Now. Tomorrow, another story from Charlotte. Controversy over a proposal to update the city's transit system. As a reminder, we're hoping to do more stories about the issues that matter to you in this upcoming midterm elections. You can text me your story ideas. I'm at 202-918-4893 or email them at podcasts at axios.com. I'm Nyla Boodoo. Thanks for listening. Stay safe. And we'll see you back here tomorrow morning. Walmart is leading the future of fresh produce, partnering with vertical farming company Plenty to bring pesticide-free, fresh leafy greens to its stores in California. Walmart is the first large U.S. retailer to significantly invest in vertical farming, a practice that supplements traditional farming, improving access to fresh food, and sustainably easing current challenges on the food system. Learn more at walmart.com sustainability. Yard work shouldn't be a chore. Pennington's here to help your lawn smarter, not harder, with products made from nature and grass seed that saves water. Smart indeed. Put us to the test at Pennington.com. Pennington, smart from the start. You may have learned in social studies class that slavery was once legal in America. You may have even known that slavery was the economic engine that drove this country to its superpower status. You may have heard of lashings and hangings and stories of slave ships. But there are things you may not have known. For instance, slaves didn't have to be purchased outright. They could be mortgaged. Did you know that in New York City, you could rent a slave for the day? Slaves who learned to be carpenters and builders often left fingerprints in the first buildings in this country. That's something you may never have encountered in social studies. You may never have been taught that the first four slave ship names were Desire, 
fortune, hope, and prosperity. Interweaving lecture, personal anecdotes, interviews, and shocking revelations, criminal defense and civil rights lawyer Jeffrey Robinson draws a stark timeline of anti-black racism in the United States, from slavery to the modern myth of a post-racial America. In Who We Are, a chronicle of racism in America, Robinson faces his largest audience, asking all of us to examine who we are, where we come from, and who we want to be. To dive deeper into this movie, which is distributed by Sony, a founding partner of the Black Information Network. We are joined by the film's writer and producer and today's guest, Jeffrey Robinson. This is our daily story, and I'm your host, Ramses Cha. So tell us a bit about your background. Well, <clears throat> I uh, am 65 years old. I was born in Memphis, Tennessee in 1956. Uh, I tell people that uh, the civil rights movement wasn't something I read about in a book. It was what I was walking into when my brothers and sisters and my parents left our home and went to live in Memphis during the time. Um, my brother and I integrated a Catholic school in 1963, which, by the way, is almost nine years after Brown versus the board. So just to give you an idea of the creeping pace of uh, so-called school integration back at that time. And uh, I had one of the best educations in America. I went to Marquette University, I went to Harvard Law School, and yet in my 50s, I started learning stuff about the history of anti-Black racism in America, in the United States, mm. and the history of a reliance on the myth of white supremacy in the United States. And that's what kind of put me on this path. Uh, but, you know, I went to law school to be a public defender, and that's what I was for the first seven years of my career in state court for five years and in federal court for almost three years. And I went from there to a private practice in Seattle as a criminal defense lawyer at a wonderful law firm that's still in existence in Seattle and Schrader, Goldmark and Bender. I'll give them a, a shout out. Sure. And uh, I was I was just doing what I could do in my career, both to try and reform the criminal legal system and to work on issues of racial justice, because the two are intertwined at so many different levels. Um, and uh, I was doing that work when I got contacted by the ACLU and they asked me to become a deputy legal director, ultimately uh, becoming in charge of their work on reforming the criminal legal system and their work on racial justice. And that was a great job. Um, and I left that job in March of last year because I believe that we are at a critical point in American history. And as we look at the country, as we look at the gaps at every socioeconomic marker between white America and black America, you have to ask the question, why is that? And if we don't know the history that brought us to this point, then by, <laughs> by definition, we will come up with solutions that will fail. 
because they won't address the true nature of the problem. And so the attempt to erase our history is a critical point where there needs to be huge pushback so that we can go forward as a nation in a way that makes sense. And the history I'm talking about, this history has been stolen from all of us. This ain't black history, this is American history. And it's been stolen from all of us. And it's on all of us to reckon with it and get it back. And that's why I left the ACLU to form the Who We Are Project to focus on that one goal. Very good. So uh, tell us about the inspiration and the origins of the film, Who We Are, A Chronicle of Racism in America. Well, as I said, I started doing research about uh, the history of anti-Black racism and the reliance on the myth of white supremacy in the American uh, uh, culture, in the development of the United States and the enrichment of the United States. And I found things that I had never seen before, had never heard before. And at first I was really uh, angry at myself. And I thought, you know, you fool, how could you not have seen this? How could you not have learned this? Why didn't you know these things? And after I decided that wasn't very productive, I decided I got to be mad at somebody, so I'll blame my teachers. Mm. And then I thought about it and thought, well, how are they going to teach me something that they weren't taught? And as a criminal defense lawyer, one of the things you're trained to do is take an incredibly complex set of facts and put it in a timeline just to see what will happen. And when I did this with the information I was gathering, I was blown away because there was an undeniable and unbroken connection from 1619 to the present that gives a substantive answer not the complete answer, but a huge part of the answer of why the gaps in America between white Americans and black Americans, why those gaps exist and what's behind them. So talk us through the premise of the movie, Who We Are, A Chronicle of Racism in America. Well, I started giving a presentation based on the information that I put together and I was giving it around the country. and. Uh, in April of 2017, I gave it to a group of people in the federal courthouse in Manhattan, some judges and lawyers. And one of the people in the audience was a woman named Sarah Kunstler. She's a criminal defense lawyer. And she's also the daughter of William Kunstler, the iconic civil rights lawyer. Mm -hmm. And she and her sister, Emily, have a film company called Off Center Productions. And they had been making films, including a film about their father called William Kunstler Disturbing the Universe. So I got a call from these women saying, we'd like to talk to you. <clears throat> uh, one of us saw your talk and we're blown away by it and we want to make a film. And I thought, this is interesting, but I, you know, I certainly knew their last name, but I didn't know them. And luckily, <clears throat> I knew criminal defense lawyers in New York who knew her. So I started looking into who Sarah was. I found out about the work they had been doing. And so I met with them and they were clear, you know, Jeff, you're one person and 
there's only so many places you can go and give this talk and it's important and it needs to be seen by all Americans and we would like to help you accomplish that. And when you talk about white allyship, they walked the talk. They came to me saying, this film is yours. You own the film 100%. And that's why when we sold the distribution rights to Sony Pictures Classics, we were able to put 100% of the money they gave us into the Who We Are project. And so all of the money that Sony has paid us up to now and all future earnings go into the Who We Are project, which is going to be focused on this kind of education that I talked about. Not only did they say that, they said, Jeff, you have final say over what goes in the film and what comes out. We're not trying to change anything you're saying. We're wanting to take what you're saying and make it as big as we can. And Emily Kunstler, is the person who edited the film and she gets all of the credit for this. The editing of this film, I think was brilliant. What she took from our presentation and then turned into this documentary film was just amazing, just really amazing. And, and so that kind of support from them uh, resulted in us becoming very close partners. And of course, you know, nobody made any final decisions on, on this or that. It wasn't one person, it was the three of us and the people we collaborated with. And some folks have said, were you interested or concerned that it was two white women who were coming to talk to you? And I certainly noticed that when they came, <laughs> but as I said, they came as they came, as allies. And we think it is critically important that this collaboration is between white and black Americans because the history was stolen from all of us. And it is not the responsibility of black Americans alone to recover and reckon with this history. It's the responsibility of all of us. And so that's how we decided to make the film and Sarah and Emily just traveled with me as I went around the country giving my presentation. And we would give the presentation in a place and talk to people in the community. And that's how the, uh, the interviews uh, that we put together uh, came into the film. Binge listen this and all your artist stations, plus any song from our library of millions of songs, all ad-free. Get your free 30-day trial of iHeartRadio All Access. You'll love it. Don't be basic. Be extra. Start your free 30-day trial of iHeartRadio All Access now. Jeffrey Robinson is with us, writer and producer of the film Who We Are, a chronicle of racism in America. I want to say that personally, I thought it was masterfully executed. Um, I spent some time with it uh, and I was watching it with a friend and, you know, to your point, the amount of history that was stolen from us was, it, it's profound to come to terms with it. And it helps frame a lot of the other history that we did learn as well as frame a lot of what we see today. And so I watch films like this all the time. This is right up my alley. But this was missing from the narrative. And, you know, you don't know what you don't know. But, you know, I, I, I just appreciate the film. Um, why do you think it's important 
for black people in your words why do you think it's important for black people to watch who we are a chronicle of racism in america and i want to focus specifically on our community and answering that question on the okay. black community i didn't know so much of the detail that was in this film until I started reading, until I started searching. But deep inside, pardon my French, I knew this was there. You know that it's more than it looks like. And when you hear narratives your whole life, and this is the narrative I heard from many not all, but from many in the white community in America. Y'all just need to work harder. Just need to pull yourself up by your own bootstraps. Jared Kushner, uh, before the last administration left office, said, well, President Trump wants Black people to be successful, but he can't want them to be successful more than they want to be successful. And so these, these narratives that you hear and you know it's more than that. What this detail does is to put substance on what I would call feeling or intuition. Because feeling or intuition is significant, but the substance is what is, is where is where you know the heart lies. And what I mean by that is for people in the black community to understand that the success in our community has been done in spite of all of these things. There it is. In spite of all of these things. Mm -hmm. And then that raises the question, well, where would we have been without these roadblocks? And one of the best examples of that is Tulsa, Oklahoma and the massacre there. Yes, sir. Where would that community have been had that massacre not happened? There's no telling about the development that would have happened. So it's to say to, to our community, all the success you see in our community, it's been done in spite of these roadblocks. Respect the people who have been able to, to pull themselves and their families to a different place in our society because these roadblocks are there. And it also says, when you look at people, one in five people in our community live in poverty. That has virtually nothing to do with wanting to be successful. You can find people in every single community that don't want to be successful. That has nothing to do with our community. What it says and what this history says to our community is when you see how difficult it is still in 2022, you now have an understanding of the details of why. You now have an understanding that this is a system that has been in place for hundreds of years. And so if you're wondering why our community hasn't made even more progress than the remarkable progress that we have made, here are the facts that need to go into the mix in understanding that. So in our community, it's a matter of respecting our success and understanding that for the vast majority of our community that's struggling today, these roadblocks would stop anybody. Very good. Now, I want to flip that question on its head. 
Why do you think it's important for white people to watch who we are, a chronicle of racism in America? One of the things that, uh, one of the ways that the movie starts is by asking is any, if anyone has ever enslaved a person. Mm -hmm. And that's purposeful because the answer to that is no. And what does that mean? It means that slavery is not the fault of the people alive in the United States today. We didn't institute it. We didn't write it into any uh, uh, initial constitution. It's just not our fault, but it is our shared history. Mm. And what's our responsibility as Americans is to reckon with that shared history. And if we minimize it, if we say, well, this history makes me feel uncomfortable, mm -hmm. so I don't want to talk about it. What we're saying to the black community in this country is I'm looking at the state of your existence and I'm willing to let you struggle with it so that I don't have to feel uncomfortable. Well said. I don't think there are many good-hearted people in the United States that would buy into that. And, you know, there are all kinds of analogies that people use, but people say, well, you know, if we have these discussions, I'm, if I'm a white person, I'm going to say something that's racist or say something that sounds racist, even though I really don't mean it to be racist. And someone's going to get mad at me or someone's going to say something that really hurts my feelings and we're going to get angry at each other and it's going to be really awkward. And what I say to the white community is, please, please don't worry about that. Every single one of those things will happen. And more than that. But if you know that they will happen, and if you know that this is part of the path to getting to a place where our country can move forward together in a way that makes sense, then you walk the path. If you have a root canal, you know when you go to the dentist, that is going to hurt, pardon my French, but you know it's going to hurt. And you go anyway, because the pain of the experience is what is necessary to get better. And so I would say to uh, the white community, the view of why America looks why it does today is informed <clears throat> by what we know about the past. And people are working desperately right now to erase this past. And they're doing it for a reason. Because they know that the truth about our history will lead many Americans, conservative or liberal, to conclusions that we have to do things in a radically different way. That's why they're working so hard to erase this truth. That's why they kept it hidden, but hidden in plain sight throughout all of these years. There are many people that say the South lost the Civil War, but they won the peace because they created a narrative that has lasted until today. And so what I would say to the white community is, don't we want to tell our children 
the truth about the history of our country? Yes or no? And if the answer is yes, then this is the road we have to walk down. You spend some time examining unconscious biases in the film in Who We Are, A Chronicle of Racism in America. Why do you think it's important that we all challenge our biases? Because we all have them. And we have them because racism has been fed to us in our honey and our milk from the time we were born. Um, there's a, a friend of mine, uh, Khalil Mohammed, a professor at Harvard University, and he makes a beautiful point that uh, people will say, well, you can't talk about these issues with children that are too young because, you know, they can't process it. And uh, many people will say, if you're not talking to your children about differences by the time they're three, you're behind the eight ball. Because you can go to the most liberal Montessori school in America and kids are self-segregating in the first grade in the lunchroom. The question is not, will your child learn about racism? The question is, who's going to teach your child? Because if we don't actively engage on this topic, our society will teach our children. They will see what we see and the process that they will go through as well. I guess this is the way it's supposed to look. And that's a really significant thing that I think we, we, we have to wrestle with uh, as, as we think about uh, the spread of this information and how important it is. This concludes the first half of our two-part episode diving into the movie, Who We Are, A Chronicle of Racism in America, which is distributed by Sony, a founding partner of the Black Information Network, written and produced by Jeffrey Robinson. Be sure to check out part two tomorrow, right here on Our Daily Story. Questlove and Team Supreme dive into the life of Will Smith and the Fresh Prince. Listen to Questlove Supreme on the iHeartRadio app or wherever you get your podcasts. This is News Source 1 Michiana, Elkhart South Bend, 2023-2024.